chapter again this morning, but we got down primarily through verse six. Uh, one of the things I said this morning, and I just wanted to not so much restate it, but to say uh, that it is a very nuanced uh, statement to say that your current, your present comfort and prosperity are not a proof uh, of your uh, faithfulness or a proof of your righteousness. Uh, they are, in fact, the mercy of God. Uh, and, and I'm saying it's nuanced in the sense that there is a blessing that flows uh, into the lives of those who are obedient to God. Uh, I think very practically speaking, when we uh, follow God, when we're obedient to God, uh, it sets us in places to where uh, we are likely to prosper more. We will be disciplined, we'll be fair, we'll be just in our dealings, and, and that has effect on our reputation, and it may grow our business through those things. But even then, uh, we can never get to the place to where we say, well, it's because the cause of our blessing is that we are disciplined and, and, and honest and all these things. Uh, those are the instruments of God's blessing, but the blessings themselves are a mercy of God. And that's kind of the nuanced point I was trying to make. And my fear, and I think it's evident in Israel's life, is that they assumed that their prosperity and their general, uh, the good general welfare that they were enjoying was somehow evidence that God was at best um, indifferent or in, and at worst endorsing the life that they were living. But the truth was uh, they were corrupt. Uh, the fact that they were still prospering at all, the fact that they hadn't already been overthrown was itself an evidence of the mercy and the long suffering of God towards his people and their covenant relationship. So, so just, just think about that. Uh, just think about uh, all the blessings in your life and how they are not so much God's, uh, they're not God's wages paid to you uh, for your labor. Uh, they are his mercies. And even if you are obedient and that's the, the instrument through which they flow, that obedience itself is a matter of his mercy. And so that's the point I was trying to make. And I think that was uh, really what Hosea is saying to Israel, especially in chapter 9, verse 1, when he begins this chapter with that exhortation, as I shared this morning, don't, do not rejoice. Don't rejoice. You have no reason for rejoicing. In fact, your rejoicing is like that of the nations. You are looking temporally and horizontally only, and you think yourselves to be secure. Therefore, you rejoice. And he's saying to them, don't do that. And then he gives the reason why they ought not do that. So just picking up in verse 7, he tells them here that the days of punishment have come, the days of retribution have come. And let Israel know this, the prophet is a fool and the inspired man is demented because of the grossness of your iniquity and because your hostility is so great. Now picking up in verse 8, it's interesting here because he seems to kind of give uh, what Israel ought to have been or what Israel was to have been. Now, this is uh, what God had called them <coughs> to be. But he says of Ephraim, he's speaking of Israel here, Ephraim was a watchman with my God, a prophet. That's what he was supposed to be. Yet the snare of a bird catcher is in all his ways and there is only hostility in the house of his, his God. And they have gone deep into depravity as in the days of Gibeah. So first and foremost, he says there are two things that this is what Israel ought to have been. Now keep in mind, this is contrasting against what they had become. This is what they ought to have been. Number one is a watchman. 
I think he means there in the sense of a century, uh, God's century in the world. They were to be a watchman among the nations, really a moral standard for the nations, a witness to the righteousness and power of God. From the time that he led them out of Egypt, out of their captivity with a mighty hand, you've heard me already say, uh, Israel was a feared nation because of their God. I mean, we know in Jericho, they were tightened up and tied down the city and they had become a, a, a fortress because they were fearful of these people coming across the desert whose God was the Lord. And they had heard of the mighty works of God. So Israel's place in that moment was they were standing as it were century. They were a witness and a testimony <clears throat> among the nations of the true God, of the power of God. That's what they were ought to have been. That's what they were. That's what they were supposed to be. Not only a watchman here, but they also had the role in the world somewhat as a prophet. Obviously, you know that a prophet is one who speaks and acts for God. He is a declarer or a herald of God, of his word and of his power. That's what a Christ or the, the, the Israel was to be in the world. I thought in much the same way as Christians in the world, we are to be ambassadors for Christ. We are here in every capacity and in every circumstances to be representatives of the interest of Christ. That's what we are to be in the world. That's what we ought to be. And if we are not what we ought to be, and if, he, if the declaration comes upon us as he's making upon Israel, they have certainly not lived up to what they ought to have been. And this is part of his justification for God's judgment in their lives. Instead of these things, there was a, uh, they says in those verses that they were a, there was a snare in all of their ways and that there was a hostility among those in the house of God. So they are deep in their depravity in verse 9. So that's in contrast to what they ought to have been. So while you ought to have been a watchman in the world, and while you ought to have been a, a herald or a prophet of God in the world, that, that elevated and privileged status that you ought to have fulfilled you have become the exact opposite of that. In all of your ways, there is snare. There is not liberty. There is not truth. There is not liberation from captivity. All that you ought to have been in the world, you have abandoned and have become the very opposite of those things. You are ensnaring the people. And among the, in the house of God, among those involved in the religious practices of Israel, there is nothing but hostility. Maybe towards God, maybe he means here hostility as a general matter. They had become something far less than what they ought to have been. He says in verse 9 here that God remembering and punishing them for their sins, their iniquity and sin was made, I think, all the more egregious because of what they ought to have been, the privilege that they enjoyed. You know, you know, in the New Testament, it talks about uh, how uh, Paul saying, how, who am I to judge outsiders? And he goes on to say, judgment begins in the house of God. Well, the reason that he says that, I think, is because there is a greater, there is a greater, if possible, responsibility among those who are the people of God to be honoring God. So it's no, it's no great, great disappointment that the world who does not know God does not serve as a watchman and a prophet of God in the world. That's, that's who they are. 
But if God calls us out and sets us aside to be those things in the world, and we have all the privileges accompanying those things, the truth, the, the presence of God, and all the blessings of God and the resources of God, all the more egregious when we don't fulfill that role and become the very opposite of that role. In fact, that's what you need to get a sense about God's judgment upon Israel. In fact, one of the, con, uh, the complaints I hear sometimes from people in the world who are not Christians is they read the Old Testament and they read about the severity of God and they say things like, well, how can a loving God pronounce such harsh and severe judgments upon a people? Well, those are not anywhere near severe as the human race in general is subject to in the wrath of God and the fullness and the pouring out of such a wrath of God. So he says here very specifically, God remembering and punishing their sin. When he says remembering their iniquity and punishing their sin, that word remembering is what makes me think that God is, God is looking at Israel in their present condition, the corruption of their souls, the, the immorality, the idolatry, and he's looking at that in the contrast of what blessings he had poured into their lives and caused them to be. And that's, and that's the, where it's prov the provocation for the anger and the wrath of God in that this is what they ought to have been and I provided for them every grace to be that and they had spurned that very thing and become the very opposite. So remembering that, I am punishing their iniquities and giving them retribution for their sins, remembering and punishing. In verse 10 uh, he, he really goes farther back what they ought to be, but here he seems to be speaking about what Israel once was. It was really interesting, but he says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness, and I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. And this is what Israel once was. They were unique in the world. They were like grapes in the wilderness. You don't think in terms of grapes in the wilderness. Usually grapes are born on a cultivated vine. And I don't think God says he looked around in the world and he found them like this. I don't think that's what he means here. He means he, by his grace, he, he, he discovered them as grapes in the wilderness. They were refreshing and they were comfort and joy and, and all the things that we associate with grapes in the wilderness. They were in the world and they alone were like grapes in the wilderness. The wilderness, you know, is full of thorns and poison berries and all sorts of things that you ought not to eat and brushes, brush piles and, and just it's difficult to survive in the wilderness. But Israel, for God, was a grape in the middle of the wilderness. Really something that ought to have drawn the desire of the nations when they saw the, the ripeness and the, and the pleasure and the luxury of, uh, of a people in the world that were distinct from all the world. It ought to have been a, something that provoked an appetite in them, a desire for grapes, something sought out. They were God's pleasing, God pleasing to God and God's pleasure in the world. That was what they once were. I think of Abraham. Uh, we, we forget about this often, but there was nothing significant about Abraham. He wasn't the, the least heathen of the heathens. Uh, he lived among idolaters. In fact, God called him out of Ur the Chaldees. I've always thought it interesting that Haran, apparently impressed by God, began to move out and, and he settled in his father, Terah, settled in Haran. And so the father, apart from the scripture's command, was already moving out of, out of that area and he moved as far as Haran, but then he died there and Abraham settled there. 
Well, when he settled there, he was no less a pagan than anyone else. There's no, no indication that his father had a call of God in his life directly. So providentially, his father may have begun to pull his son out of this heathen culture. We don't know. But what we do know is that Abraham was heathen just as much as the other heathen. But God singled out by his grace and by his sovereign choice this one heathen among the many heathens. And he says, come out from among those people and I will make of you a nation. And through your seed, you know, all the promises, the nation shall be blessed. And that's, that was God's grape in the wilderness, as it were. He looked at Israel as this grape in the wilderness, this one person pleasing, this one people that is pleasing to God and, and are God's pleasure. And they alone in the wilderness of sin and heathen and idolatry were God's special select people. I love it here that he goes further, sort of a parallelism, but he says here, and I, I saw your forefathers as the first fig among the first ripe fig among the first fig trees. They were the prototype. Your forefathers, they were unique in the world. There were not fig trees again or, or a cultivated item. And God brought about this fruitfulness in these people. And God looked upon them and took pleasure in them as a grape in the middle of the dry and barren wilderness. And as, a, as a first, the very first fig tree bearing its very first fruit. That's, a, that's about as fresh as you can get. This is what God says Israel was. And now look at what they've become. They were as rotten as the nation. It says later on, they worshiped idols, their shame, and they became as detestable as the thing they loved, which was the idols. They were as bad as the idols. But this is what they once were. What happened to Israel? The call here is for Israel to take stock. And I, I, I compare this to, to Christians and Christianity in our country today. What were we, what ought we have to been? Or what, what ought to have we to be, to, to be, we should be the, the light on the hill, the beacon. Uh, and I think we once served that purpose in the world. We were sending missionaries all around the world from Europe and later America. We were heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ, bringing the truth into, into pagan nations and trans, transforming lives and building orphanages and feeding millions. We were the light. We, we ought to have been this people of God, these Christians who bring not power and corruption and manipulation into the world, but the truth that sets people free within, even if we can't break their bonds without. In fact, I don't think Europe, Europe would have probably fallen to the evils of Nazi Germany had America not been engaged in the battle at some point. I don't think Europe uh, would have been able to overcome them. So America, what were we, what ought we have, what ought have we to be? In history, what, what did God call us to do? What did God call us for? And how do we measure up today in regards to what privileges God has given us in a free nation constituted uh, from a constitution or brought together by a constitution that in large part sprung from Judeo-Christian beliefs and reality? What, what privileges has he given to our nation today? And if God would look at us today in terms of the great blessings and privileges he granted to us, how would he evaluate us? I'm afraid maybe not much different than Israel. 
In fact, we may be like Israel in the sense that look at us, we're the superpower, we're the number one economy in the world, the whole world collapses if America collapses, they're dependent upon us, we're the greatest nation on the planet, we are stable and strong and and though we, we are teetering it feels at times, no nation would dare come against America and we're like Israel. Surely God must be pleased with us. Surely he must not be angry with us for we are so strong and prosperous and we all have homes and we all have cars and clothes and heat and food and all these things. It'd be real easy for us to deceive ourselves into thinking that somehow this was God's endorsement of our lives or at the very best that he was indifferent to the growing corruption in our country today. I assure you he is not. God is not indifferent to these things. So they were this way. Think of their earliest as earliest of God's fruit. Think of the generations of Christians. I was talking to someone this morning after the service and we were talking about how much of what we do are the remnants of a tradition that once was born out of devotion. A lot of the practices we, we utilize today were born when they weren't present. They were developed as a way of encouraging and reminding and, and reiterating to a generations that follow the things we believe are important. And our problem in our generation is that we've forgotten the root of those things and we've adopted the practice as though it's somehow sanctifying. It is not. It is not. That's what he rebukes them for later on. The bread of your feast is just for your bellies now. Because you've forgotten the, the, the origination of the feast, which was to draw your attention to my grace and my power and my, my, my presence in your lives, which was your life. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But you've forgotten that and you've satisfied yourself with the bread. And so I, it just became religions, uh, religious observance and it sufficed only to fill their bellies and nothing else. And it, and it makes me wonder sometimes if the institutional church in America has just sustained its practices and lost sight of the very root and the very devotion for Christ. You know, that's part of the rebuke of some of the churches in, in the Revelation there, particularly those who had left their first love. You're, you're doing all these things right. You're doing, the, you're doing the Christian thing, but I've got something against you, and that is you've left the very foundation for doing the things your love for Christ. The Laodiceans had become lukewarm, neither, neither passionate about good or passionate about evil. They were just lukewarm and it was sickening to the Lord. If they were, if they were passionately sinful, he could rebuke them. If they, were passionately, if they were passionately devoted, he could utilize them. But in the condition they were, they were good for nothing. And so he says, I will spew you out of my mouth. I think that's tied actually to um, water that would actually come in from hot springs. And by the time it reached there, it was not hot enough to take a bath, but it was too warm to drink and be refreshing. And it was literally useless. Uh, you, ever, you ever took a warm drink of water when it was 95 degrees and you were sweating outside? And the only way I would swallow that is if I knew that I'm going to die of dehydration. But otherwise, it's not refreshing at all. And so had the church become in those warnings. And I wonder if those warnings are not for our day as well. So what they had, what they had once, what they ought to have been, what they had once been. Notice in verse 10 as well, what they really presently were, because he says, but they came to Baal Peor 
devoted themselves to shame. The New American says the literal translation there is idols or Baal. And they became as detestable as the thing which they love. What did they love? What they devoted themselves to. What did they devote themselves to? Baal. And, and what, had that, what did they become like? Baal. And I, that was a real lesson for me in that. And this is this. This is a principle, particularly you young folks. Remember this. You will become like what you devote yourself most highly to. Uh, I, was, uh, I remember when we were kids, I'm a, I'm a glutton for punishment, but I grew up as a Minnesota Vikings fan. And I remember literally crying as a kid because they'd go to the Super Bowl and lose four times, four times to the Super Bowl and lose. But I idolized Fran Tarkington. He was the man, the scrambler in the backfield. They couldn't run Fran Tarkington down. And I was devoted to the Minnesota Vikings that when we would play on the schoolyard, I had all his moves down and mimicked. I was, I was becoming Fran Tarkington in my mind. But I was becoming what I was devoted to. And that's what he says of Israel. This, this people with God's special favor who, who were to be watchmen's, who were to be watchmen and the prophets of God. These people went to Baal Peor and they embraced Baal and they devoted themselves to Baal. They loved the Baals. And the result was they became like the bells in the sense that they became just as detestable to God as the bells. God's special favored people became as, as idols and detestable to God. That's a frightening thing to do and a frightening indictment of those people. So that, that was what they had become presently. They had devoted themselves to all sorts of things. It is almost unthinkable to think that you could utilize what were Christian practices and feasts ordained of God in the worship of an idol in the place of God. That is unbelievable and it's, it's blasphemous. And you think, about, you think about how we are subject to utilize religious things that were given to us by God, originated and become the practice of the church to, to exalt ourselves or to elevate churches or, or ministries or or, or some kind of other thing other than God, we're doing essentially the same thing. We're utilizing those things that were born out of a devotion to God. We're redirecting those things to exalt someone other than God. That is not a bit different than what Israel was doing here. This favored people began to prefer the Baals. And as a result, they became like the Baals. They became detestable. So I don't, I don't care how religious you make it look uh, if you are not devoted to God and worshiping God it is idolatry and it is detestable in the sight of God churches that gather and call themselves churches and they utilize all the all the institutional Christian practices all the while with some other motivation other than to point towards the glorious Christ the glorious God are doing the same thing that Israel was doing in their day and Subsequently, I think, just as ripe for the judgment of God as they were. Notice in verse 11 through 17, I won't spend so much time here, but I do want to make reference to this thing. But here's more of the idea of what Israel shall become. Um, in verse 11, Israel shall be without their glory. He mentions here, the glory will depart. As for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird. Uh, I thought about the analogy he uses there, glory leaving like a bird. 
one thing about a bird when it flies away, about the only thing you can do is watch. You're not going to catch a bird with your hand. You ever had a bird get in the house and try to capture that thing? It's impossible. The best thing you can do is open the door and get on the other end and hopefully scare it to the window because you, it's hard to take a bird in your hand. It's uncontrollable. It just goes away. And all you can do is stand and watch it go off into the horizon. And he says that's the way Israel's glory is departing. His glory here may be the people of Israel themselves and their population and their prosperity because he goes on to tie this uh, to no conception, no birth. And so he may be speaking of the glory of Israel in terms of its growing and its influence in the world. <clears throat> but, but very specifically later, <clears throat> he says, I will depart. So I think he's talking about the glory of God which had been Israel's refuge and stronghold, the, the glory of God, which had been the means by which the nation speared Israel, that's leaving, that's departing, and it's flying away like a bird. And at this point in Israel's life, there's nothing you can do to retain it. It's going to be like a bird flying away, and all you can do is watch, watch it depart. You remember the word, anybody tell me you know, what the word Ichabod means in the scriptures? Uh, you remember the incident when he... Uh, when Eli finds out that his sons have sinned and he falls backwards and, and basically dies in regards to that, uh, one of the statements there is, Ichabod, the, uh, the glory has departed. It's, it's going away. Israel's just among the nations now. No glory. Nothing to distinguish them from the nations. That's the judgment of God upon Israel. And these are the things that shall be. This is what the prophet is saying. This is what you will become, Israel, you favored people of God who abandoned God and sought the bells. Your glory is departed. He mentions in verse 11 as well, and also I think again in verse 14, barrenness is what I call this in general. In verse 11, he says, no birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Down in verse 14, uh, he says, give them, O Lord, this is a question, give them, O Lord, what will you give them? And it's as if the Lord is answering back, give them miscarrying wombs and dry breasts. So Israel, as part of judgment upon, from God upon Israel, because of their harlotry, they, were, they are going to be barren. They are, they're, they're diminishing now in their population. No children, no conception, no birth. You're a, you're a shrinking people now. And in that generation, a small population is going to be easily overcome by a massive population. So your numbers matter. It matters today. It matters today. In fact, I think in America, if not Europe, may be the leading. But in North America, the birth rate uh, is dropped almost below. Europe may be slightly lower than us, but we're not even having enough children now in America to sustain the current population. And if other nations are having five and six children per, per household, per couple, while we're having 1.2, eventually their numbers are going to so out, outnumber our numbers that they will overwhelm us by sheer numbers. Already, uh, I think I've read somewhere that China has an, a million man marching army, million man marching army, million men on foot with rifles, infantrymen. America's nowhere near that many men marching. So we're, so they were becoming, they were going to be coming barren. Verse 12, again, this diminishing population. Verse 12, he says, though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them until not a man is let. Yes, yes, woe to them indeed when I, here's the glory, depart from them. So whether he means 
whether, though they bring their children up, he's going to bereave the children of their parents or whether he means though they raise their children, the Lord is going to bereave the parents of even those children. So no birth, no conception, uh, no, uh, as he mentioned there, no, no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Further still, those who are born, even though they bring them up, I'm going to bereave the parents of even them. It is a barren place. Uh, fruitfulness belongs to the Lord. And judgment upon Israel is that they were going to be barren and diminished in their population. Verse 12, as I've already mentioned, yes, woe to them indeed when I depart them. They will be abandoned by God. He's no longer going to have his presence among his people. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if Israel at that moment understood the significance of that because all that Israel was was because of God's presence. Uh, without God's presence, they'd be, still be in captivity in Egypt he delivered them out by a mighty hand. They were his people from the very beginning. Everything that Israel was, was because of God's presence. And now God says, I am departing from them. Woe to them. And I would say that applies to America today. Whatever God may, however God may have blessed the world by, by what happened here in America, if America departs from God, woe to America when God departs from America. Because all of our protections, all of our barriers, all of our security goes away. And the world is a mean and a crafty uh, and a corrupt place. And they will not long. Uh, in fact, if you ever read, I haven't read all of it, but about the fall of Rome, uh, the instrument of that fall, you know, was within. Now, there was no enemy without that could take them. It was corruption within that undermined their own security to the point that they, they became vulnerable to the enemy without. And so it would be with Israel, abandoned by God. Verse 13, part of the judgment is they would be carried away essentially for slaughter. I think that's what he means here. Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pleasant meadow like Tyre, but Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. And I think he means he's coming out of this pleasant place where he's planted, but it's not, for, it's not for good, it's for slaughter. He's coming out of that place of pleasantness into a place of slaughter. Israel doesn't know this yet. and I don't think it's their present experience. This is what is coming. This is the retribution and the day of punishment that has come upon them. In verse 15, part of the judgment is they would be hated by God because of their wickedness. Verse 15, it's a terrible thing to be saved, to, to have it said that God will hate us. But here he says, all their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there because of the wickedness of their deeds. I can survive being hated by a man. In fact, I can avoid that man and he can avoid me and we may never have words and he may not have the power to, to exercise his hatred towards me. But when you're hated by God who has power unlimited and who knows us to the very depths of our being, it is a striking thing to say that in Gilgal there I came to hate them. Well, that was their idolatry. That was why they're, they're sacrificing to idols. And in that moment, God hate began or he began to hate the very people that he had chosen and loved so they would be hated because of their wickedness verse 15 as well they would be driven out of the house of the Lord verse 15 I will drive them out of my house I will love them no more and all their princes are rebels this is this is what Israel is to become and see keep in mind this is in contrast to what they ought to have been what they were 
and even in some degree what they presently had become. And because of that, this is what they will become. This is going to be Israel. So they're driven out of the house of the Lord. Verse 15, unloved by God. In verse 16, they will be stricken. These are my words, but stricken, uprooted, and become fruitless. Verse 16, he says, Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. And the judgments of God expand to a whole people, to a whole people. Uh, it may be that God is merciful and will spare children, but whole children, whole families, whole generations who've come under the judgment of God, uh, the children will endure it as well. That's what he's saying here. So there's no escaping when God removes his grace and his mercy and his judgment comes in its fullness. In verse 17, says here that they will be cast away from God. My God will cast them away. What a word, uh, what a phrasing, cast off. The very people that he chose out of the nations, not of any merit of their own, but by his sovereign grace. And the ones who had the privilege of the experience and the presence of God, his word, his power displayed on whose behalf he had acted against the nations. This peculiar, precious people of God, all these years later now, cast away. Cast away. They had proven themselves worthless and no more of any value to God and for God's glory. They were no longer that watchman or that prophet in the world. And finally, in verse 17, sad commentary, but they will become wonders, wanderers among the nations. I just wrote in my word, undiscerned and, and dispersed. They're out there, these descendants of the Israelites, these descendants of Abraham, they are out there They've lost their identity. They're dispersed among the nations and they're wandering from nations to nations. Poland, Russia, Germany, America. They're still out there. They're still out there dispersed among the nations. People uh, only, only recently returning to Israel and establishing that nation again and beginning to gather themselves back together and, and perhaps and hopefully and prayerfully God's hand is at work bringing his people home to the day that he, they one day acknowledge the Messiah. Although in large part, that gathering is secular right now. It's not, it's not Jewish. It's not, it's not Judaist, even Judaistic. It, they, they're secular. So they're still wanderers among the nations. So God was judge, God's judgment had come upon them. And lastly, in verse 1, I want to just return to this again. This is why the prophet says, do not rejoice. Don't rejoice. Because though you don't realize it and though you are in the moment uh, enjoying some level of prosperity and some level of security, the judgment has already been rendered. It's already upon you. It just hasn't manifested itself yet, but the judgment is sure. And I thought about this in this huge lesson. And listen to this because I've tried to select these words very carefully. The sin that brings about judgment began and reached its zenith even while prosperity and comfort deceived the people into concluding that God was somehow endorsing their lives or at best or at worst indifferent to their sin. It was already, it was already declared. They're enjoying for the moment in Hosea's time a relative prosperity 
unbeknownst to them, judgment had already been declared. And it began with their sin. And it, and it, that sin reached its zenith. And when it did, God rendered the judgment. This is the judgment upon Israel. And Hosea is saying to Israel, while they are still enjoying relative prosperity, that their judgment has already been rendered. And your prosperity is no proof that you are somehow pleasing to God. In fact, it, it has deceived you to think that God is indifferent to the corruption displayed within your nation. And it's a frightening thing to think that if we go on in sin, judgment may be rendered before we ever see the material and horizontal consequences of that sin. That God has already declared his judgment upon America even while we're sitting comfortably tonight with our heat on and our power on and gas in our cars and the judgment may have already been rendered. His glory may have already departed. And the danger of sin is that we deceive ourselves into thinking that there's a, an immediate response. We do good, we have blessing, we do bad, we lose blessing. No, God is long suffering and gracious and he may leave the prosperity in place for many, many years even while faithful preachers are warning the people of God and the people of America and America may harden their heart to that and pursue their flesh and think that in our high place, there's no way we can be shaken. That's what Jericho thought. And they didn't raise a sword. They didn't fire a cannon. They didn't fire a shot. The people of God simply marched around that city seven times. And on the seventh time, seventh day and the seventh time, they blew the trumpet. And the word and power of God brought all their defenses to rubble and left that people, that powerful people, completely exposed to God's judgment upon their nation. You know, in the Old Testament, it says that God is not judging the nations that Israel, that, that, that was, would be displaced by Israel. God is not judging them, moving them out because Israel's a better people. He's saying that God is moving them out as his judgment upon them. They lost their place because of sin. And the nation that takes up that place and inherits that place, if they sin, will not hold the land either. We're not special in that sense as Christians. If God has given us a free land and a place from which we can preach the gospel and proclaim the gospel around the world without persecution and without consequence to us negatively, there's no reason to think that we can sustain that place if we sin. He's not obligated to give us this country and give us this freedom simply because he provided for it once. If we forsake him, he's not obligated whatsoever to continue to bless this nation. And I'm afraid America, I hope that our nation will open up and that we will wake up. And I pray that God's decree of judgment hasn't already gone out in its fullness against our country. But if it has, we ought to be preaching repent. We ought to be, we ought to be humbling ourselves and we ought to be going out into our world and preaching the gospel. And, and sharing that truth so that even when that judgment comes, there may be a remnant of the faithful who can endure the heavy hand of God's judgment upon a nation. So, so that's my conclusion. Again, in Romans 2, 4 through 5, I quoted it this morning. Uh, if, you think, if you think that God is relentless in his mercy for a sinning nation, uh, Paul rebukes the Jews for such thinking. Don't you, 
Don't you realize that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but you've rejected that. And in doing so, you're not, you're storing up wrath. Uh, God's wrath against sin is either expiated or exhausted in the person of Christ. But if you reject Christ and go on sinning, he's not just looking over that until you become aware of it and then hold you responsible for the sin you're aware of. That's story, that's being stored up. That's being stored up. And if we go all the way to judgment day rejecting Christ, then the fullness of that wrath that's been stored up on our behalf will be poured out upon us. And that's where Israel was. They're, they had rejected their only means of mercy. And without mercy, there's nothing left but God's judgment. And that's a frightening thing to think about and to talk about. Uh, on a positive note, you can stand with me, but in Christ, uh, in our union with Christ, that wrath has been removed. Uh, we will not come into the judgment of God, ever, ever. Uh, Jesus has received the fullness of the wrath of God on our behalf, so it's a blessed thing to be God's chosen people, indeed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the serious warning we hear not only Hosea but in all the prophets that being your people does not somehow excuse our sin all the more father we have a greater a greater responsibility to live lives in obedience to you Lord we're not legalists we're not those who think that somehow by our obedience we achieve some status but father uh, by our obedience we acknowledge your mercies Father, we are thankful to live here in this nation, free as it yet is. But, Father, we also recognize that we see the foundations crumbling, the things that, that were built upon. Uh, we've lost sight of the ground of that, which is truth, and ultimately, which is a person, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts, our faith, Lord, that we would raise our children with truth and speak to them of these things that they might perhaps be the generation that calls with the power of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to a nation to repent and that they, they, they might be prophets in their generation. So Father, help us. Most of all, Lord, I just pray that however your providence unfolds in the future that the name of Christ will be exalted. We know from your word that every knee in of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth will bow and confess Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so, Father, we are confident and trusting in that day. And we just pray for your mercy to bring us through to that day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.